0: Hey, folks. We're watching major trials this week. In Wisconsin, a jury acquitted Kyle Rittenhouse of charges for shooting and killing two men and injuring a third man in 2020 during a night of protests following the police shooting of Jacob Blake. And in Georgia, the trial for the three men charged with killing Ahmaud Arbery, a 25-year-old black man in 2020, is coming to a close. Joyce Vance and I discuss all of this and more on the Cafe Insider podcast. Today, we're sharing a clip from the episode with listeners of Stay Tuned. To hear our full conversation and access all other Cafe Insider content, try the membership free for two weeks. You can do that at Cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. We look forward to having you as part of the insider community. So let's talk about why he was acquitted, why it was not totally unreasonable for the jury to acquit, even though you at least thought Given a particular instruction that they were given, there was a possibility of conviction. And the main reason, from a sort of 30,000 foot level, is that what, what people don't always appreciate is the law dictates certain things that are different from what common sense tells you, right? So a lot of what this case came down to was a focused concentration on that narrow moment with respect to his shooting three people and whether in that moment, notwithstanding, to some degree, notwithstanding the decision to come to another state, the decision to be carrying an AR-15, the decision to be in, a, in the midst of a lot of violence where lots of bad things can happen. You put yourself in that situation. Much of that, if not all of that, was off the table of consideration, but for the provocation point that you can elaborate on in a moment. And if the law is dictating that you're focusing on you know, the precise, narrow moment, that Kyle Rittenhouse pulled the trigger those few times, the defense got to emphasize that with respect to one person, that one person had a gun. With respect to another person, he tried to take Rittenhouse's gun away, his rifle away from him. On the third occasion, one person who he ended up shooting was smashing his neck with a skateboard. And people that have differences of opinion of how dangerous it was and whether or not shooting those people was proportional or not But those were the facts that the jury was compelled to focus on rather than the whole sort of larger context of why Kyle Rittenhouse was there. Is that fair?
1: I think that's fair, and it's a really interesting question because I suspect you agree with this. The outcome of this case would have likely been different if the jury had— been exposed to what I'll just call the whole ball of wax, right? The decision that Rittenhouse makes to come over in that entire context. If that had been part of the calculus for determining provocation, this could have been a different case. But as you say, the law imposes constraints. The judge instructs the jury on the law, and the jury's obligation is to follow the law as the judge gives it to them.
0: I have another question for you. So obviously the prosecution is disappointed in, I'm guessing, every case— Where there's an acquittal, if they spend the time and resources and exercise their discretion to charge a human being with a crime or multiple crimes, they believe that the case is righteous and just and they want a conviction. When you had acquittals in your office when you were the U.S. attorney, did you put out statements after acquittals?
1: I don't think I ever put out a formal statement. Also, I didn't really get acquittals when I was a U.S. attorney. You never I, I got mean, any
0: acquittal ever? You know what they say about no, that. when we You weren't trying hard. Okay. Um,
1: we did. In <laughs> fact, you know, in civil rights cases, we had a, a dangerous record of hanging juries, but that's a topic for another day. I think what you say when there's an acquittal, and I'm sure that I always said this in substance, is— our job is to present the evidence to the jury, and it's up to the jury to decide the case. And as long as we present our evidence to the jury, then justice has been done.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't think I said that, but we would put out a statement if it was a a case of public significance and public interest and include a line where we say, you know, we respect the jury's decision. You don't trash the jury. You don't complain about the jury. You don't complain about the judge. And you learn whatever lessons are supposed to be learned, and then you move on to the next case.
1: You know, and I think it's worth saying this. We're observing these trials. And for instance, in Rittenhouse, I watched a significant portion of the trial. I didn't watch every last witness. I didn't get to sort of look them in the eye in the way that the jury does. And I have tremendous respect for groups of jurors to reach decisions when they deliberate based on the evidence. What's impressive to me in this case is that this was a unanimous acquittal. Even if there was dispute in the jury room, we don't really know how those deliberations went. The jurors ultimately were able to vote and reach a unanimous verdict. And that seems to suggest to me that there really were flaws in the government's evidence. And so I'm very hesitant to criticize that jury verdict, despite what I might have seen in the case.
0: There was a great piece in The Washington Post by Philip Bump, and I think it's worth quoting from at a little bit of length, that relates to what we've just been talking about. And he writes, with respect to the Rittenhouse case, quote, it's important to step back from the Rittenhouse verdict and contextualize it. Rittenhouse killed two people and the state was unable to convince a jury that he bore criminal responsibility for doing so. And then he makes it a, a, a point to say what the jury was and was not considering. And he writes, the jury was not asked whether it approved of Rittenhouse's actions or if individuals should take it upon themselves to supplement or replace law enforcement. They were not asked to take sides in the underlying tension between critics of law enforcement behavior and the police. Perhaps other jurors would have reached a different conclusion. And then he says, the problem here is not the jury. The problem is one that predates August 25 of last year, a willingness to leverage violence for political ends and to rationalize political violence, end quote. What do you think of that?
1: It's something that, you know, you and I have talked about a little bit, this notion of vigilanteism becoming a Increasingly becoming a feature of of society. I think that there's a lot of truth to that and a lot of concern. The reason I'm hedging a little bit here is I don't like the notion of letting Kyle Rittenhouse avoid specific responsibility and accountability for his own conduct. Yes, you know, we live with a certain zeitgeist, but what Rittenhouse did was a series of specific decisions that he himself made. And ultimately, I think that that's what the jury should have honed in on. And perhaps they did so and, and, you know, properly just said there's not enough evidence here to convict.
0: It reminds me a little bit of some of these unfortunate police officer shootings of unarmed black men insofar as you have a circumstance in which, and there are a lot of cases like this, where a bunch of mistakes are made, bad judgments are made. So, for example, you know, cops go to a residence based on a flawed search warrant You know, they don't, this is some of the stuff that happened in the Breonna Taylor case, and they make mistake after mistake. But then the law causes a jury or prosecutors to focus on the very, very narrow moment of the cop feeling like he was threatened, and they can use deadly force. And in no way does that justify the whole act, and in no way is that, you know, justice in the larger sense, depending on the circumstances, but the law is very focused on that moment. And I think that's what happened here. The evidence of the decisions that Kyle Rittenhouse made, the person who gave him the AR-15 made, that his mother made and other people made, those were mentioned. And there was some about a a color given. But the, the precise jury instructions were about mostly whether in the moment, you know, whatever circumstances led him to be there and however poor judgment it was for him to be there. As I understand the law in Wisconsin and the law was given to the jurors, what was more relevant and more important To the decision of the case was, for example, when someone pointed a gun at Kyle Rittenhouse, did he have a reasonable fear that he was in mortal danger, which permitted him to shoot?
1: Yeah, it's that pinpoint moment and— Something that's been, I think, tough in watching this trial is not being able to see the jurors and not knowing what their reactions to evidence have been. That's something that I always focused on a lot as a prosecutor. It helped me decide what I wanted to emphasize in closing argument, for instance. And we didn't have that here. But I suspect that although, really, if you think about it analytically, the key moment in what happens here is this first shooting. It's the first time that Kyle Rittenhouse pulls the trigger and everything sort of flows from there. I suspect that what was very influential with the jury was hearing the testimony of Gage Grosskreutz.
0: It wasn't until you pointed your gun at him, advanced on him with your gun, now your hands down, pointed at him, that he fired, right? Correct.
1: I suspect that that had a lot of impact, sort of an outsized impact on the jury.
0: Oh, yeah. And especially it does when it's a witness that you're expecting to hear be helpful to the prosecution. And when a witness of the prosecution calls with great expectation that that person is going to help prove guilt and does the opposite, that's a devastating setback to the prosecution. So the law limited the ways in which the jury could think about the case, whether that's good or bad. People can make up their own minds. But also the way the case came in. That's the phrase that we use as trial lawyers and how the case come in. And sometimes it doesn't come in the way it does in the storyboards that you you plan out in your mind. And some of your witnesses and some of the witnesses in this case, like the one you just described, actually ended up being good for the defense. And there was another witness also, right? There was a journalist who talked about um, what his observations were with respect to another victim. And we'll talk about the victim issue in a moment too who was, you know, chasing at Kyle Rittenhouse and attempted to grab his rifle. You know, so Rittenhouse's testimony about the threat he faced then, whether he should have been in that position or not, is a separate matter. But the testimony that he gave about feeling he was under threat when someone lunged at him tried to grab his rifle is corroborated by a third-party witness. That was also harmful to the prosecution's case.
1: You know, it was. And and again, the government always bears the burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt in these cases. And I've wondered if in this era where there's available video of crimes, if the burden on the government doesn't become even heavier, because jurors are in some ways expecting to see the government's version of the crime on videotape. And here the videotape is at best equivocal, it's grainy, it's certainly susceptible of the self-defense argument that Rittenhouse wants to make. And I think the failure of the the videotape to clearly back up the government's arguments is something else that puts them behind the eight ball in this prosecution.
0: But, you know, as Philip Bump says, there's a way of looking at the case. It's not just purely about the narrow moment and the legal instructions in what the legal responsibility and decision-making of the jury is. But for society, and for the country at large, that is undergoing a period of, you know, deep concern about violence and about the way in which protests should be done and the way in which counter-protesting should be done. You know, there seems to be an increasing interest in vigilanteism. I mean, Ahmad Arbery, that case we're going to talk about in a moment, is a little bit about vigilanteism. Even the Texas abortion case, about which we're going to get a decision any moment, is a little bit of a vigilante type situation, also because it empowers private citizens not through violence but through bringing lawsuits empowering them to oppose abortion and call out fellow citizens there seems to be this trend in some quarters for private citizens to be deputized and do the work of law enforcement either because they think law enforcement is not doing what they're supposed to be doing or because they think it's fun to do i don't know what do you think about that
1: You know, I think this is private citizens deputizing themselves because they don't like the way the world works. And maybe they don't like the fact that the police were restrained that night, that the police didn't shoot anyone. There's a a little bit of irony here where Tucker Carlson makes the argument that the police failed to respond and so Rittenhouse had to do their job for them. And you, you sort of stop and think, well, yeah, Rittenhouse did go out and shoot people. Maybe that's what some folks wanted to see in reaction to the Black Lives Matter protests. But this is the fatal undermining of the rule of law in this country. When we return to the era of vigilanteism instead of the era where We all get along. We all work together because we have certain rules. And maybe we don't like the application of a rule in a specific instance, but we understand that it's those rules that permit us to function. We are losing that shared set of assumptions.
0: Yeah, and, you know, it's interesting. We talk on the show from time to time about the perception that police officers are not trained well enough in restraint or in de-escalating or whatever the case may be. And that's certainly true. We see case after case that involves, you know, that scenario. But I gotta tell you, you know, your average police officer, law enforcement officer, law enforcement agent, is a hell of a lot better trained and restrained than your average 17-year-old with an AR-15. Or, you know, three white men, one of whom was a former cop in Georgia, thinking that it's, you know, taking the law into their own hands with respect to Ahmad Arbery. If you think the police are bad, Just wait till the public citizenry starts acting like they're the police.
1: There is no police chief, no sheriff, who wants Kyle Rittenhouse out helping his department do their job on a night like the night that Carl Rittenhouse shot and killed two men. They all want him to stay off the streets, right? Every last one.
0: Yeah, and he should have stayed off the streets. (laughs) When you're showing up with an AR-15 in the middle of violence and you're 17 years old, it's not going to end well. Now, here's another point that some people are making, and I wonder if you find this disturbing— I don't think this came out in the trial. it wouldn't be relevant at trial and it's not legally relevant in any case. There are some people on the right who are lionizing Rittenhouse in part because of the criminal backgrounds of some of the people that he shot and one of them. Thanks for listening. To hear the full episode, head to cafe.com/insider and try out the membership free for two weeks. That's cafe.com slash insider. To the many of you who have chosen to join the insider community, thank you for supporting our work.